0: Hey guys, this is Robert Malazzo from Murmur. Before you listen to today's episode, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Audible. Audible is this incredible digital platform where you can listen to all of your favorite books and radio shows, TV programs, magazines. Basically, if you can read it and you can see it, you can listen to it through Audible. So here's an idea. Go to audibletrial.com backslash murmur, and they will give you a free month's trial because you listen to Murmur. Again audibletrial.com backslash murmur free month on them but believe me you are going to want to keep subscribing it's a great platform I listen to it in the car all the time when I go on road trips with the dog he likes it too don't ask me how I know I just know audible listen to it you'll love it and now quiet on the set quiet on the set
1: scene one take
0: ten marker From the studio of WHUP-LP Hillsborough, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour, together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, who, me? Of course me. Actor, writer, director, comedian, Christopher Guest is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. Weekly via WHUPLP Hillsboro and also Evergreen on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, MurmurRadio.com. We have social handles at MSF Murmur. At MSF Murmur. That's Twitter, Instagram. Facebook, Murmur Radio Facebook. We also have other stuff. I just don't know what it is right now. Oh, we have an email. Radio at gmail.com. With you here every week live. W-H-U-P-L-P, Hillsboro. Happy to w- be with you here on Murmur. Welcome. Welcome back. Today on the show, I want to play you a chat I had recently with uh, Christopher Guest at the Onion Comedy Festival in Chicago. It was it was really a great time. I've uh, I've had Christopher in on other bits of programming. I uh, I did a class on his I taught a class on his uh, Waiting for Guffman and he was nice enough to Skype. Now, the Onion AV Club asked me to do something for their comedy festival and and, and i was like uh yeah uh, so that was fun and they asked me well who do you want to invite and that you know inviting someone from the world of comedy uh, but i was was idea one huge idea idea two was someone who was multilingual and comedians are really amazing guests because they're naturally engaged naturally their antenna and their radar are pretty sharp and sensitive. Christopher was the first person that leapt into my mind because frankly, the first time I chatted with Christopher, it was it was one of the most challenging <laughs> chats I've ever done. And I'm I'm I think I may be at a stage in my life and my work where I want to I want that challenge. I want to hold a discussion that's a challenge. So I emailed Chris, and he was great, and he said, yeah, let's do it. So then I thought, oh, what have I done? But I realized that the premise of this talk would not be a This Is Your Life. The premise and the format would, would uh, show itself in the form of what I call in pictures. It's a, it's a type of talk I do where I ask the guest to pick three films that have influenced them. Now, usually I ask them to pick one film from their childhood one film from a moment where their career became public and one current film. Christopher wanted to go about it a little differently. He wanted to pick three films and we would locate them where they where and why they were important in his life throughout the course of the chat. And that was cool. So what we do is or what I did in the talk and what Christopher and I did is we, we went in chronology in, in the form of his three film choices. And that's what you're going to hear today. The other fun thing, the other light bulb that went on for me was I wanted to reach out to uh, to Chris's kind of unofficial joint stock performance company of the Christopher Guestians to contribute. And we had a really great response. So in the course of the talk, you're going to hear what I would call Easter eggs uh, from Gene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, uh, Jane Lynch. Uh, I won't spoil the others, but you're going to hear that throughout uh, the talk. So that was really cool. Now, again, speaking with Christopher the second time around, I thought it would be an opportune time because I I found that the first time talking to Christopher about Christopher is the challenge or is the kind of zone that I either – that I most likely didn't want to go back into that zone. so I thought talking about something indirect talking about him indirectly would be the key. Uh, so having him talk about movies outside himself might lead him back towards a discussion of process. but as you'll hear in the talk and I thought the talk was really interesting but as you hear you'll hear in the talk uh near the end, he mentions how few people ask him really he's he's talked about his process, but late in the talk I ask him, about people observing his process. And he said, no one's really ever asked to observe my process. But then he followed that up with, because there's really nothing to observe. You can't really observe a phone call. Well, maybe you can now. <laughs> anyway, so I thought this would be a really cool opportunity to talk about Chris as if he wasn't there through cinema, in a sense. And I thought... I. Th- I think we got it to we got I got to some really cool things and Christopher shared some really cool insights that I hadn't heard before and not patting myself on the back because you may listen to it and think the absolute opposite. I like to go into places that aren't currently being litigated for our guests, and I think sometimes that. Uh, the the drama and the sex appeal of that may not be apparent but I think in this format being able to listen to it and not see it actually ironically may lead to uh, more of a more cognition a, a greater cognition that he is is revealing something of interest And again, this isn't you know what I do is not journalism. Well it may be more journalism but it's not gotcha journalism. It's not anecdotal, gossipy. I like to ask things that the people in the audience may not have thought they would hear, but is useful to them on some sort of anthropological, cultural level. Did we succeed? Did I succeed? Did Christopher succeed? Well, the event was sold out. Uh, It was a 700-seat cinema, the Music Box Theater in Chicago really great the people from the onion and the av club were great and it was just really cool i'm a huge fan of the onion i mean who isn't have you ever met someone who doesn't like reading listening to the the onion in all its forms and fashions uh so it was really cool and my thanks to christopher for coming and jamie lee was there and, and you'll hear all that and again you'll hear from a lot of the usual suspects of chris's movies which to me makes it all worthwhile and in that spirit um, I think the best way to start this off is to hear from one of them. Enjoy.
1: Hi, Mr. Guest. Uh, longtime fan, first time caller. I want to know why you don't uh, do more movies. Everyone loves to watch your films with people like Bob Balaban and Michael Hitchcock and Fred Willard. And uh... oh, <laughs> hi, Christopher. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles clipping coupons, and I don't even know what that means. But seriously, Christopher, I'm just thinking, it's me, but you know, even if you only did another movie once every month or two, people can't get enough of your movies. Don't forget to mention your own movies. They're always my favorites. Um, I've never had more fun in show business than I've had appearing in one of your projects. And even if you go ahead and do one every couple of months and don't use me, I'll be first in line to buy tickets. Meanwhile, congratulations on your award. I assume you're getting an award. And I want to thank the Modern School of Film and the Onion Comedy Festival for letting me be part of this. Meanwhile, here I am in my library, settling down and read a good book.
2: Hello, I'm Harry Shearer in London. Welcome to the Modern School of Film and the Onion Comedy Festival's Christopher Guest in Pictures. Christopher Guest, uh, I've known him for well, an embarrassingly long number of years now, a uh, large number of years. And uh, I still don't know the guy at all. I have no clue who he might be. So any insights you may glean in the next 90 minutes, uh, you might want to pass them along to me at my public email address. Thanks for that. Um, as I mentioned, I'm in London. Uh, Christopher, as you may know, was for a short period of time an hereditary member of the British House of Lords, their upper house of their parliament. And uh, he got kicked out. Some words were exchanged. I don't know what happened. It's in, on the tabloids. But uh, he left so quickly, it turns out he left his ermine robe here. Um, so, Chris, if you're watching while you're preparing, whatever you're preparing, uh, I just want you to know, uh, I picked up the robe. And uh, there's a dry cleaning bill. We can discuss it You know, next time we see each other. It's fine. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I am so grateful to Christopher for... So many wonderful years of great meals, great discussions, but above all, great collaborations, starting with Spinal Tap, then at Saturday Night Live, uh, then Christopher was nice enough or gracious enough to uh, give me some wonderful parts in his uh, amazing films, improvisational films, uh, through the years. So um, I I guess I owe him big time. Um, In that spirit, uh, Chris, I got the dry cleaning covered. Enjoy your evening.
0: My name is Robert Bellazzo. I'm the founder and the lead instructor of the Modern School of Film, and tonight we are honored to have a guest with us. You know, it's funny, the original series of the Modern School of Film is one person picks one film and talks just about that film. The most requested filmmakers' films, genre notwithstanding, with the authorship of tonight's guest. When The Onion asked me to bring a guest, it was Christopher Guest all the way. It's It's amazing. We like to think at the Modern School film that, that movie watching was not responsible or irresponsible to the growth of one of the great modern artists. We've asked Christopher to pick three films that have uh, informed him over the years. Uh, it's a series we call In Pictures. We're honored to be here. We're honored that the Onion A V Club asked us. And thank you again and again. We love coming to Chicago. Please welcome to the Onion Comedy Festival, to the modern school film simulcast on Murmur Radio, the right honorable Christopher Guest.
3: nice welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you Chicago. Is, are people hearing this? Maybe not. Oh. And thank you Robert. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, the first question before we talk about your film influences, do you consider yourself part of the history of film? I mean, or do you consider, and if so, how big a
3: size of it? No, I think that would be uh, a little, Presumptuous, uh, to think. I, I just, uh, no, no, no.
0: Okay. Uh, did, did you grow up a majority of the time in,
3: in the UK, no. or was it uh, Greenwich Village, or what was the split? I, I grew up uh, in New York City, in, in Greenwich Village, and my father was uh, worked at the United Nations, he was English, <clears throat> and we would go back and forth to London quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm here. That, that's the entire thing. What, what, was, what role
0: did movies play? What were your, some of your earliest movie memories? Were they sort of a, uh, did the family gather to watch movies? Did you explore on your own? What were some of your earliest movie
3: experiences? Um, oh, that's not funny. Wait. Um, I think the first memory was being taken by my dad to see Laurel and Hardy. Wow. And Laurel and Hardy, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> for, for those of you who, who actually may not know, uh, there were a comedy team, uh, silent movies at first, and then they went in talkies. And there was a presentation in a theater um, in New York. They weren't playing first run, obviously, because they'd come out in 1932 you know, or three or whatever. And they played for a period of time and I went to see them a couple of times with my dad and thought it was unlike anything I had ever seen and fantastic, made me laugh. I was young and um, that was really the first thing um, as a young person. Um, Young people didn't go uh, to movies in in those days unless they were uh, movies like uh, The Blob. Not a clue, right? You know, it's a, it's a, um, the, the science fiction movies that were cheap, but we didn't know they were cheesy because they weren't cheesy yet. They were only cheesy now. But, uh, and I think that was really the beginning. And then I, I, at, at one point, I just thought as I was backstage, I thought I bought a camera, a, a still camera, when I was in my teens. And I would walk around New York City, wherever I was, holding it up as if it were a movie camera. <laughs> and no one told me you actually could depress <laughs> the, 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 the shutter and actually get a still. I found that out later, but I actually thought this was a viewfinder of something. I didn't really know what, I had no idea. I had no, I had no thought of, of being a filmmaker, or director, or anything else. For that. Well, a
0: little later we're gonna talk about Stanley Kubrick and you know, camera was sort of a gateway drug for him to become a filmmaker. Did you ever consider uh, moving images as, like, a filmmaker at that age? No, no, not at
3: all, no. I, I, uh, not at all, no. I um, I was thinking about things that made me laugh, predominantly. I was thinking about the way someone walked on the street, or a conversation that I heard. Uh, I became simultaneously a musician and an actor in New York on the stage first and then I began writing when I was in my early 20s at the National Lampoon and it evolved somehow from that but it was not a traditional filmmakers uh, path I guess.
0: A question or note on Chaplin and Keaton, you're talking about the way people walk and the way people fall and the physical aspects of it. Were you drawn to any of that at an early stage? Or was that later as you oh, yes. had my, a context? My
3: dad, who was a very talented f- uh, physical uh, person, uh, taught me how to fall downstairs. <laughs> which... How did he teach you that? I'm just curious. Well, he, sh- he showed me. Did, well, now, not, a, not 40 steps, but you know. And I thought, I, I like that, I can do that. Which I, I could. And I did a lot of physical uh, things when I was younger. And um, so I was drawn uh, more to Keaton than yeah. Chaplin. Yeah. And I had a picture of Buster Keaton in my room on the wall when I was about probably 14 or so. And he was called the Great Stone Face. Uh, he, he had a deadpan. And I thought, well, that would be a good idea. And I really didn't know later, truly, until much later in my life when people would say, I was directing a movie and (coughs) someone, an actor, would say, why are you mad at me? (laughs) What do you mean? Well, you you look so, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, no. And I didn't realize that I think uh, I had adopted some kind of um, physical manifestation uh, which was, misunderstood entirely, I mean, a hundred percent of the time. (laughs) Plus or minus zero percent, yeah. No, there was no, no, no room for error, no. And uh, it happens a little bit less now, but not not that much less.
0: It's funny, even thinking just for a second about Keaton's intro into the business was physical almost vaudevillian,
3: the family would throw each other around the stage. Well, they would throw him at the age of two or three into yeah. the curtain. Literally throw him into the curtain and he would slide down and get up and they would keep doing that. And, that was, uh... and, and, and,
0: and apparently the patriarch of the family had an escalating problem with alcohol and the, the, the act was getting very violent and that's when they sort of curtailed young Buster.
3: Yes, but, but later on in his life, and he made a lot of famous <coughs> films, obviously slapstick movies, and uh, he did all his own stunts, and right. at one point he went for a checkup, and a doctor said, uh, huh, when did you break your neck? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, your neck was broken. He said, oh, I didn't know. Wow. Wow. Stunning. I had to think about it a lot when I was asked to name some projects and films that meant something to me. Again, it, I've, I've taken a different path than a lot of people, I suppose, but I, I look to films that resonated with me in an emotional way, partly, and maybe in a big way. And in the case of one film, uh, the comedy of it. But if you look at all of it, what, what it comes down to, and we can start taking questions actually, because I'm moving way too fast. Um, is it comes down to truth and I realize that the truth in the movies or pieces of the films that you'll see is what attracted to me me to them a long time ago and without consciously even knowing that and I think later in the work that I did I think that's what I attempt to do and that may be even somewhat unconscious in the sense that I hope that the movies which are in the form of a documentary are very real questions? <laughs> Good night, everybody. Drive home safe.
0: <laughs> just, just, just one thing uh, to tack on. You know, truth is sort of a broad, is a personal metric. I mean what is truth? Is it just something well, you especially know especially now? Wait, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is it just something beyond
3: words that you know it when you see it? Oh, a <clears throat> well, I would say uh, emotional truth in the sense that if you see a scene in a film, uh, an emotional scene, I, I'm putting comedy aside for a second. <clears throat> um, what always interested me much more were films that weren't comedies. And I don't go to see many comedies. But if something is well performed where you believe it, that's a rare thing that, that clearly connects with me in some way that moves me, and that to me is more important. When I, when I do a film, uh, the most important thing to me is the, is the reality part and the building the character based on something real as opposed to a sketch, which is the opposite of that. Yeah. Do you go to the movies a lot? Uh, My wife and I go, I would say, four times a year. My wife, Jamie Curtis, is here. Yeah. Is that about right? Yes? So so you you go... Three, three times a year. We took our son about 10 days ago to see, um, roughly 10 days, two weeks ago, to see the opening day night of Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, which he... (laughs) But the answer is no. Uh, and I think it, it, I've never gone all that much. Strangely, what
0: more. would draw you—an actor, a director,
3: a topic? I it mean, could be. It could be uh, any of those. things. yeah. yeah. It's just—it's not something. I know people who go and see everything, and they—they they just want to see everything and see what's right, out there. Right. I, I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the three
0: choices. We're going to go in chronology. Um, the first choice. Uh, we'll tell them what the first choice is. In the I don't know. Sector. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> The first film is a Fellini film. Is this bringing back any memories? Yes. Talk a little bit about Feli- then talk a little bit about Fellini over, overall, and then maybe the title will come back to you. Yes, I, I,
3: think, I think as a youngish person and seeing uh, I also spent many summers in Italy as a child. Uh, I think five or six summers we spent in Italy as a family, and probably from the age of eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, maybe 14, whatever it was. And then I saw my first Fellini movie, which was this wasn't the first Fellini movie I saw, but I was in shock because (laughs) of the combination of humor and reality, I guess. And pathos, I suppose. Um, Knights of Cabiria. Uh, is a film he did, it's it's a very famous film for people who who do go to the movies or or know about film. And it stars his wife, Giulietta Massina, who is a a brilliant actress, maybe one of my favorite actresses uh, ever. Uh, And uh, it's very, I've seen it in the past couple of years, I've seen it twice.
0: In cinemas? or at, at No. Home? No, it's very hard to, yeah, to it, do It that. screens very rarely. Yeah,
3: Very hard to do that. Yeah. And it is absolutely held up in terms of what affected me about it. Um,
0: what was the first Fellini that you were identifying you ever saw? And when did you first see Nights at Kiberia, 1957
3: Kiberia? Well, I, mean, I saw Kabiria later because they, in New York they had these revival things where they would show his movies. I think, um, I'm not sure, I know that wasn't the first one. Um, was it a Dolce Vita or was it one of the big, broad... It could have been La Dolce Vita, that would make sense, which was later. Which was actually
0: right after, the, this is yeah. his, his next film after this, 1960 yeah. La Dolce Vita. Um, this is the Fellini film when I show it to my students, they're they don't think of Fellini this way. It feels subtle and restrained mm. to them. It uh, won uh, an Oscar that year for best foreign film. He had won one for La Strada as well. This was yes. his second Oscar. La Strada was the first one. La Strada, yeah. It's so funny, you know. We, we, uh, I had Chris Christofferson uh, as a guest and uh, the movie he wanted to talk about was La Strada. And I said, why do you want to talk about La Strada? He said, me and Bobby McGee is written, it's based on La Strada. Wow. Which just blew my mind. Yeah. We couldn't get a copy of it, because the De, La De, La, De, La, De, De, De Laurentiis family that owns the print won't release it. Wow. So it is a crime. You, you, say, you say it, and it's so true, that a lot of people don't get to see these films now.
3: No, you, you, you can find them on DVDs, and I think there are other ways of seeing them, but to see them projected in the theater would be the, the, uh, the way to do it. That's optimal.
0: Yeah. This was the fifth, the fifth of seven collaborations between the two. They were uh, husband and wife. What is it about Juliette Messina? It's funny, you know, I, I think of so much of Chaplin when I watch her and vice versa. There's a physical actress, not subtle. Do you think we overrate subtlety? Well, for,
3: for I, I think it, it, is, it is not broad. I don't respond typically to broad, uh, a broad style of, of work. <clears throat> she is almost a ageless, uh, in terms of going back 500 years, clown, in a sense. Yes. And she is so vulnerable, and it's so fragile. It's amazing. And she can be funny, and she can be strong, and there's a a very wide range of things she can do.
0: What is it about Fellini, you know, in the sense of, is it the imagery, is it the acting, is it the writing?
3: Well, it's all of it, obviously. I think you're right about looking at it that way. In Amacord, if you look at the family, you're right in the middle of a a family. Um, The music uh, is essential. Um, I was moved by this music even before I knew who that was. Um, And he had this amazing composer work with him who didn't really become famous in this country until the Godfather. to the Godfather, Nino Rota. Yeah. Uh, so Nino Rota, <laughs> who, who did The Godfather and the theme and obviously the, the rest of the score, um, wrote dozens of films. It's absolutely, and it's the way it should be with a composer and a director, the perfect match uh, in terms of the the fun and then the sadness. Lestrada, this, this, the score for Lestrada is one of the most achingly sad uh, themes ever. Yeah. yeah. But I like,
0: uh, this is my favorite of Rhoda's. I like how it, it's very self-conscious. The characters are singing the song right. in it, especially at the end. I was thinking about this w- with the musician, as you are. Um, do you get distracted by music in a movie? Or do you get drawn in because of your ear for music? and your ear for musicianship,
3: does it distract
0: you? Does it draw you in too succinctly?
3: No, I, I wouldn't say so. I, I, I would say that I'm aware of it. I guess if it's working, for someone who doesn't work in music or write music, <clears throat> they shouldn't notice it, I suppose. Yeah. It should be effective. I do notice it, but it doesn't take me out of the the film. Fellini
0: films are heavily dubbed, I was thinking about this. One of the reasons why is he used to yell at the actors so constantly they couldn't record sound.
3: I do the same thing.
0: That's what I was getting to, yeah. When you talk about film in this way, do people, you know, are they surprised at, at, at how, how that your, your film taste is foreign films or your film taste... I've never talked about it before. Really? Did, yeah. Seriously. Do people not ask about your Apparently film taste? Apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> these, are, these are sad times we're living in, yeah. When you picked this out of the, the realm of Fellini, was did it have an association with a time in your life? Was that part of the romanticism of it?
3: I I think so. I think... You mentioned living in Italy. Well, we spent time in Italy, I think, uh, hearing music, um, that culture. um, The same goes with having lived in England for periods of time, where it affects me in certain ways still to be back there. Um, I think the same goes for music, that you're very impressionable as a younger person, when you hear music, and then later in your life, that music or that film will still hold some appeal. Even though, in terms of film, at least for me, if I go back and look at some films that I liked then, and some songs, they don't hold up.
0: Yeah, Fellini and his wife, as I mentioned, Julietta, had worked together seven times. How close have, have you and Jamie ever gotten close to working together? <laughs>
3: Thank you, everyone.
0: <laughs> well, is it like a third rail? I mean, is it, have you ever gotten close to it, I guess?
3: No, no. I, I, no, I don't think so. I, I think, uh, I bet she can explain this better than I can. Is, is she here? She is. She's right here. It may be a different explanation than mine. I'm anxious to hear, actually. So it's been a, it was a conversation at some point. Well, in the I, I had a feeling, and I, I think I'm, although I don't have a good memory, I have a, f- a, f- a memory that <clears throat> I thought to keep our show business lives separate was m- maybe a good idea. She may have another reason. <laughs> she just doesn't like your work, yeah
0: could be. Um. Let's um, jump to our next choice. The next choice, do you remember The Next Choice? No. (laughs) Uh, Uh, You can give me a hint. Let's talk a little bit about French film, shall we? Ah. Uh, You know, this is a, a, people have a Pavlovian response to French film. It conjures an image. Such as? Well, you know, maybe overly poetic, maybe
3: overly thought, Ah. unpopular wisdom.
0: Are you a French film? Fan, well, I, I should say,
3: the first film I ever wrote was called, I think, wow, was called The Big Picture that I did with Kevin Bacon. Great movie. And uh, Kevin Bacon's a star. <clears throat> and there's a scene in there where one of the film students talks about, uh, he's a very pretentious young filmmaker, and he talks about Cahiers du Cinéma, which was a, a French film magazine. And in the I guess it would have started in the mid-50s. I'm not sure exactly when all that started, but there were a bunch of auteurs in, in France making movies, and then it, eventually some people said, yeah, so, so the f*** what? Um, well, they didn't actually say that at all. No, they said, uh, this is fantastic stuff. Um, I wasn't there, so I don't know what, what happened. <laughs> it's a loose, a loose translation. Um, yeah. it, if you're an older person, one would have a more romantic connection to those movies. I don't know what a younger person would make of those, but Truffaut, Francois Truffaut, I think um, is as meaningful to me as any director has been. And this comes down to, again, a combination of a sense of humor and reality. And he um, made amazing films. the film I chose is, that he made a series of films with the same actor and you see this actor, <clears throat> this character, Antoine Dwanel, uh, that's the character's name, Jean-Pierre Laude is the actor's name, uh, grow up on film through a series of these films. I picked The 400 Blows, which is a... a um, it's a masterpiece visually, and here's this young actor. I think he must have been 13 or 14, I think. Uh,
0: 15 at the time. 15.
3: Yeah, but he looks like a baby. Right? Yeah, he really does. And um,
0: When was the first time you saw it? Do you remember? Uh,
3: I don't except it. I was at an impressionable age, and in New York, we had a, several theaters that played foreign films. Yeah. And I did go to a lot of those. It was, a, it was considered uh, sort of a hip thing to do then.
0: Was this NYU time? I was thinking... Uh, no,
3: being- no, it was... Uh, yes, it was. Yes, I went to, uh, <laughs> I went to a um, school... I went to NYU School of the Arts. It's now called the Tisch School, I believe, yeah. And at the time, uh, it was uh, I was hoping to be an actor, and we were doing uh, whatever we were doing. We were doing circus classes, uh, Andre Gregory was there, Grotowski was there, it was kind of an exciting yeah. time. Yeah. It wasn't until about 10 years later that I found out there was a film school in the same building. <laughs> a friend of mine said, uh, someone said, you were at NYU, and I said, I was. He said, I was there at the same time. And I said, well, what were you doing? He said, I was a film student. What do you mean? And so someone at the NYU film school thought it was a good idea not to use the actors in the <laughs> acting school, because it was just too convenient. They, they, were, they were in the same building. So there was never a moment when someone said, well, we're doing a student film. Where are we going to film? Find- oh, here they are, but no. Never. <laughs> It never happened, and this is true. No, it was was ten years later that.
0: uh, Not much has changed. I know there's ah, definitely a division. Yeah, churches. Well, there's
3: there's a division in a sense in 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 films, and and that's another discussion.
0: Uh, Had you been to France at the time before you had seen this? I mean, I guess because it's such a love letter to Paris. Yes, I
3: uh, my family moved to France uh, to Paris when I was six months old, and then I lived there for I think a year, and then we would go back there a lot. We had a house uh, in the south of France for a period of time, and so I had a connection with Paris as a young person.
0: The opening of the film itself is just a well. It's, it's, a love letter. It's,
3: for people who have, who have been to Paris, it's an incredibly romantic uh, city, obviously visually beautiful city. <clears throat> and on film, and to see a black-and-white film uh, done when this was made, it, it's very gritty, but it also has that... We're romantic.
0: Yeah. What about breathless? We can't... N- not a fan.
3: Well, as, w- as with anything, um, music or films or, or anything, people have... it's all subjective. People yeah. have... respond to things for various reasons, depending on how they grew up and they're, who they are. Uh, that, no. No.
0: <laughs> for those of you who have seen, or maybe not seen, as I said, the ending is, is legion. I mean, it, it is one of the definitive great sort of important endings in cinema history. Yeah. Sort
3: of cinema 101 in a sense. Why do you think that ending has lived on? Well, I'm not being facetious. I, <clears throat> I didn't go to film school, and so I don't know that that is right. 101. No, no I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny. I, yeah. When you asked me to pick things, it wasn't based on what I knew to be classic things. things. For me, what that means is, again, you have to see the the film, but the hugeness of this moment. This kid has been bashed around his whole life. He's, He's basically been disowned. He runs. Earlier in the movie, he talks about that he's never been to the ocean. Right. And he sees it, and he's running. And you think about these shots, those long, tracking shots, which today would be cut into four-second edits because people are too busy you know, looking at the cat on the piano thing, um, which is a funny, that's a funny video, by the way, the cat, the kitten is walking on the uh, But staying with that, with him, and then seeing he has nowhere to go at the end. He's reached the end of running and you see him turn and look in the camera and it's pretty moving. Yeah. Say, you have to, to see the rest of it. Have
0: you ever been to the Cinémathèque Française? No. Never been. never been. Never been. That surprises me. No. Uh, ever, has it ever been in your, on your radar to try to go, to go to browse? No. Does this make you want to go? or
3: uh, No. <laughs> no. I tried, it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry, Francois. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I wasn't trying to be funny when I, I come at what I do from a very different place. You know, I don't uh, talk about film, and I haven't talked about film in this way. Films have meant a lot to me, but not in, in an academic way where I've read about that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh,
0: have you ever tried to replicate something you saw in a movie I mean, your films, the, the DNA of the, your films is so different, I, obviously, but have you ever used a frame of reference, like an image as a frame of reference? Yeah. Editorially, nothing. He started as a critic. Could that ever happen again? I mean, everyone's a critic now. Everyone is a movie critic. Could a critic become a practitioner?
3: Well, I should say that the people who are supposed to be critics now, uh, I wouldn't call them critics. I, right. So, uh, in the, a long time ago, people... There were a handful of critics that were considered to be writers, good writers, many times. Uh, whether you agreed with them or not, they were—they had studied film, they knew about film, um, and they didn't live in the, their mother's basement and, with a <laughs> laptop. So it's, um, it was a very—it was a very different thing. It's there was, some, kale there was some gravitas. You didn't have to agree with what they said ultimately, but it was a different perch. I stopped reading uh, criticism and reviews in the late 80s. I haven't read any review of anyone since then. Not one. This is not a segue, but it kind of is for our last
0: film. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was asked, have you ever listened to something a a critic said about your films? He said, when a critic has watched my movie as many times as I have, then I'll start listening to them. (laughs) Mm. Um, The last film, Ho Ho, you know, I didn't think you would choose a documentary, but you did. The last film you chose, do you remember the last film you chose? I do. Okay. Uh, Tell them what went into it and tell them the title of the last film.
3: Well, this is a film that I saw in the theater uh, when it came out. Um, Was it 62? 64. 64. For a reason. For a reason, right. People call it Dr. Strangelove, but it has a long title that... Please clap. This is a movie... I
0: mean, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying... This is a film, it's funny because Oliver Stone just screened this for Putin. Did you hear about this? No. Uh, Oliver Stone is doing this documentary series on Putin, Mm. and one of the episodes he screens this for Putin. Mm -hmm. Putin had never seen this film.
3: Which is well, of course he hadn't. Why would he? He's a KGB guy. Uh, I don't know. He has seen all the Three Stooges, however. Uh, <laughs> right.
0: So you saw you
3: saw it early '60s, '64. I saw it when it came out.
0: Wow. What was it? What drew you to it? That was Peter, Was it Peter Sellers? Yes, Peter Sellers.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, unreal. Peter Sellers, uh, and I guess my interest in what ultimately became. <clears throat> Uh, something different when I started making movies but I, I was an actor and a musician and I worshipped Peter Sellers I had heard him in England doing the Goon Show this is stuff from long, long ago this is from 60 years ago stuff uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a trajectory in my c- comedy sort of uh, interest that's, that began with um, English comedies and Peter Sellers was part of that. The next thing that was a big thing was something called Beyond the Fringe with Jonathan Miller and Peter Cook and Beverly Moore and Alan Bennett. That was the single biggest influence in my comedy life, I would say. And, then, and I saw that originally when it came out. I was 12. This, the this stage,
0: yeah, the, the play, yeah. which is a play version, which is amazing for a play to have that much of an impact. Cleese, you know, and the Pythons were kind of Well, next. they were the next generation
3: yeah. uh, of that idea. You, you, if
0: memory serves, you met Sellers when you were 16. I was uh,
3: 18 Eighteen. I met Peter Sellers.
0: And you were working for Jonathan Miller. I was working
3: as an assistant for Jonathan Miller. I wrote him a letter. My family had met him and I had the balls to somehow write him an actual letter. People wrote letters on paper <laughs> saying, asking if I could be his assistant. He said yes, so I went with him. <clears throat> to London and he worked, uh, he, he directed a film of Alice in Wonderland for the BBC that had uh, Peter Sellers, Peter Cook, John Gielgud, Michael Redgrave Pax, all of them. All <laughs> of them, And uh, I got to meet Peter Sellers. Yes. Incredible. Uh,
0: how brief a moment was that, or extended? It must have
3: felt like it went on forever, but what was the interaction? No, about? it felt very short. I had the uh, thought Given that I had heard his records and I was <clears throat> worshipped this person, and what you, what do you do when you worship someone? Is is imitate something they've done? <laughs> Always a good idea. He he was a man, a very difficult man, not a social person, uh, a, a brilliant comedic talent. I did a voice to him within the first minute of meeting him (laughs) that he had done on a record. And if I may, I'm not an impressionist, but I'll give you his response. (laughs) Um, I really, I thought, in that moment, wow, that was a smart thing to do. This was, uh, um, yeah, I, it was chilling. Uh, he he didn't say. Now I would have. I, people have come up to me. Someone came up to me uh, three days ago and did that on an airplane. Which car- what? Which character? What did they? I couldn't even remember what it was. It, it was not <laughs> vague thing <laughs> in my mind. that sounded familiar, and I was <laughs> nodding. And I could have said great it would have been a lie cuz i didn't know what they were actually doing although i knew it was something i had done and i could have said good very good but i didn't i was i didn't you 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 i'm not trying to compare myself in any way it's just that moment where i could have been more I could have been uh, more accommodating, I suppose. Peter Sellers had no issue with being, he, he just stared at me. <laughs> and I backed away. I,
0: I've heard you tell another funny story about someone who doesn't suffer fools, Elaine May, d- doing a bit of improv in front of. Oh, Elaine, yes. With, yes. With,
3: her, with her daughter, right? Yes, I was at school with Elaine May's daughter. Elaine May, obviously, for people in Chicago, would know who Elaine of May course. is, I hope. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Yes, I was uh, 17 and I formed a, what we thought was a comedy group, <laughs> three of us, went to Elaine May's house, because this is a good idea as well, <laughs> should have been on the same day as the Peter Sellers thing. Um, we did something, I have no idea what it was, and her reaction was less than Peter Sellers' reaction. <laughs> the, the seconds after I met, Peter Sellers, he was standing next to Ravi Shankar. Oh, I'm yes. not trying to name drop this, no, is, these incredible. are the people who are working on the film. That's incredible. And I loved his, his music and Jonathan Miller said, <clears throat> after this, the Peter Sellers fiasco moment, he said, and this is Ravi Shankar. And I shook his hand and he, he went like this, do you play the guitar? And I said, I do. He said, wow. So that kind of made up for the Peter Sellers stuff. Wow. Game, set, match.
4: Mr. President, I would not rule out the chance to preserve a nucleus of human specimens. It would be quite easy. (laughs) At the bottom of uh, some of our deeper mind shafts. Radioactivity would never penetrate a mine some thousands of feet deep. And in a matter of weeks, solutions, improvements in dwelling space could easily be provided.
2: How long would you have to stay down there?
4: Well, let's see now. Uh, cobalt sodium G. Uh... uh Radioactive half life of. I uh, would think that uh, possibly uh, 100 years? You mean people could actually stay down there for 100 years? It would not be difficult, my Fuhrer. Nuclear reactors could. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. President. Nuclear reactors could provide power almost indefinitely. Greenhouses could maintain plant life. Animals could be bred and slaughtered. A quick survey would have to be made of all the available mine sites in the country. But I would guess that a dwelling space for several hundred thousand of our people could easily be provided.
2: Well, I would hate to have to decide who stays up and who goes down.
4: Well, that would not be necessary, Mr. President could easily be accomplished with a computer and the computer could be set and programmed to accept factors from youth, health, sexual fertility, intelligence and a cross-section of necessary skills of course, it would be absolutely vital that our top government and military men be included to foster and impart the required principles of leadership and tradition. <laughs> Actually, they would breed prodigiously, eh? There would be much time and little to do. (laughs) But uh, with the proper breeding techniques and the ratio of, say, ten females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product within, say, 20 years.
2: But look here, Doctor, wouldn't this nucleus of survivors be so grief-stricken and anguished that they... Well, envy the dead and not want to go on living? No, sir. Excuse me.
4: Also, when when they go down into the mine, everyone will still be alive. There will be no shocking memories. And the prevailing motion will be one of nostalgia for those left behind. Combined with a spirit of... Bold curiosity for the adventure ahead.
5: (laughs) (coughs) Doctor.
1: You mentioned the uh, ratio of uh, ten women to... Each man. Uh, w- wouldn't that necessitate the abandonment of the so-called uh, monogamous sexual relationship? I mean, uh, as far as men were concerned. Uh,
4: regrettably, yes. But it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. I hasten to add that since each man will be required to do prodigious service along these lines, the women will have to be selected for their sexual... ...characteristics which will have to be of a highly stimulating
6: nature. I must confess, you have an astonishingly good idea there, Doctor.
4: Thank you, sir. I think we ought to look at this from a military
2: point of view. I mean... uh,
1: ...supposing the Ruskies stashed away some big bombs, see, and we didn't. When they come out in a hundred years, they could take over.
2: I agree, Mr. President. In fact, they might even try an immediate sneak attack so they could take over our mineshaft space.
4: Yeah, I think it'd be extremely naive of us, Mr. President, to to imagine that these new developments are gonna cause any change in Soviet expansionist policy. I mean, we must be increasingly on the alert to prevent them from taking over other mineshaft space in order to breed more prodigiously than we do, thus knocking us out through superior numbers when we emerge. Mr. President, we must not allow a mineshaft gap. Sir, I have a plan.
3: Hello, Christopher Guest.
4: It's uh, Jane Lynch. How you doing? Listen, when I think of Peter Sellers, I think of you. Um, yes, you're an original and you're unique, but I just have this feeling, since you chose this Dr. Strangelove, I just have uh, this feeling that you were inspired um, by Peter Sellers. Nobody did more with less and had more impact comedically and character-wise than, than Peter Sellers and I would argue the same about you and I uh, was wondering if you would talk about how um, uh, Peter Sellers inspired you and um, I hope you guys are all having fun and I'd love to hear what you have to say.
3: A Chicagoite? Yeah? yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to say. I, um, he, he was a, an actor that affected me from when I was a young person, I would say. Seeing his films and then listening to him do voices and create people. There's a, obviously, or not obviously to, to you, but there's a great deal of improvisation in this seen all those beats. You can see Peter Bull, one of the actors, laughing, laughing yeah. over his shoulder while he's doing this stuff because that hadn't been done before. Um, and that was a vital part of what he, he did. It, I didn't look at that. I didn't study that. I just took it in, I suppose.
0: Yeah. What about Kubrick's work? Just to get back to him a little bit, are you a fan of his? Well, I think
3: it, I, I would divide it into to uh, the idea of uh, who the actors were, in a way. There are many films that I di- didn't respond to. Such as? Well, a 2001. Really? Which was, uh, you weren't born probably when that movie came out. That was a movie where people smoked dope, went to the movie, and laughed, giggled.
5: <laughs>
3: <clears throat> and <laughs> that was it. That it wasn't discussed in, it, it, this was the a period of time when people were uh, in, it was hard to describe, but <laughs> on the Lower East Side of New York City, the buildings were painted day and people were. <laughs> 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 yeah, and those were the police, by the way. So that experience for me, it, it, had, it was very removed from actors because the actor, the, the main actor was not considered to be an actor that you would study and say, I wish I could be Cire DeLay. Um, he, he, and he, that's true with some of the other movies. Now, Sellers, having him have Sellers in a movie changed the, yeah. the dynamic. But there are many movies that I don't respond to. Uh,
0: so Sellers uh, uh, called Being There His Favorite Role that he said this was the most Pleasure. pleasurable right. to, to make. And it's amazing how much faith, rightfully so, Kubrick had in Sellers. Well, he had to. Yeah, had to. rightfully so. Uh, Kubrick once called actors emotion-producing instruments, and a director is a taste-making machine. And I don't think there was any irony in those statements. Well, there,
3: I was going to reference this earlier, that <clears throat> there are many film directors who go through film school having had no experience with actors and not wanting to because they learn how to do storyboards and they, they know how to do people in front of blue screen or whatever they're doing. And then if they're lucky enough, they get to do something and now you have actors. And now what the hell are you supposed to do? Because they don't have any connection emotionally knowing how to talk to them and no interest to be honest. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing because they they wish they would wish it was a cartoon because then you know now I have to explain what am I supposed to say uh, for for directors who have been actors or have at least been closer to actors the movies are very different you know? and Kubrick definitely was on the other side of that line and so the the. Idea that he worked with sellers was a big break for him because you really are just you can't control that.
0: We're actually going to get to questions. We'll start our questions. Now, don't, uh, don't take
3: this personally. I'm not going to be here for the, to answer. <laughs> but That's true. I want to applaud you for <laughs> s- standing up. I have a I have a an understudy somewhere. We, we have we have a small <laughs> a picture double. Yes, sir.
0: Uh, your question.
1: Well, I was looking at the lead actress in the Fellini film you selected, and who's a great clown with great vulnerability. And I kept thinking of Catherine O'Hara in *For Your Consideration*. Who I think is just one of the greatest clowns we have, and was so vulnerable in that film. And I just love to ask what that collaboration was like with her on that particular role, and just just that.
3: Well, working with Catherine, she's unique, and people use that term too much. Um, I've been very fortunate to work with some truly great uh, comedians and comediennes, and Catherine is on her own level, it's another thing. Um, We did, uh, the first movie I worked with her in was Waiting for Guffman, and... (laughs) Catherine, what I was talking about earlier about bringing some emotional honesty, off the top of my head, um, there's a scene in Waiting for Goffman where she gets drunk uh, in a scene with Eugene Levy, uh, <laughs> Linda Cash and at the Fred Chinese Miller, restaurant. The Chinese yeah. restaurant yeah. Right. It's extraordinary. I don't get to see the, my own movies much. I don't watch them that much, but I saw it about um, sometime in the last year. I went up and saw maybe a few months ago. And I, it was it's really chilling because how real it is. It's not based on jokes. It's based on behavior, and she goes to a place that people don't go. And I, you use that as a standard that it's very hard to. It's uh, you you give entire your your trust is completely with her, as it is with any actors that I choose ultimately for films. But she goes to a place that's a rare place. It's amazing that.
0: That was your first work with Jean, Eugene Levy and... Kevin. Yes, I had
3: never met Eugene it's, and it's I called him up on the phone and said, do you want to write a movie with me? Yeah. And he said, uh, okay. Was,
0: did he believe it was you?
3: Oh, well, yeah.
0: Sorry, I lost my head there for a minute.
3: No, I think he said, how could this be happening? No, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Just a just guy calling him on the phone, you know. Uh, we actually have a question.
0: A couple of my former students are not here. They wanted to be here. And they, they were really
3: excited at/ slash desperate. Well, how much they really wanted You'll to be You'll see. You'll see.
0: <laughs> we have their question via video, I believe, in the booth. Can you just watch this sure. and, and maybe no, respond I'm, to yeah. this virtually? You don't have to get up. I'll really? get
5: up. Oh. Hi, Chris. My name's Catherine. I did a few movies with you. That was fun. Uh, I have a question. I wonder, why is it, do you think, more people don't
1: attempt to write and direct these improvised movies. It's just too hard. They're frightened, They're just not you. Well, my question for Mr. Guest is: of all the writing partners that you've worked with in your movies, which one was your all-time favorite? And that's not really my question although I'd still love to know the answer. Here is my
3: question. My question is, when you're casting an improvised movie,
1: what is the one thing that you look for? They weren't my greatest
0: students, I'll admit, but they're quite great questions. From Catherine, why why don't you think more people attempt
3: improvised movies? (laughs) Well, I, I've, I've done some Q and A's where people have asked <coughs> what my process is, and over the years I've tried to explain in the best way I could, but there are then a lot of uh, glazed-over uh, <laughs> eyes. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's not like uh, there aren't, uh, it doesn't happen because, wow. I don't know if um, it's yeah it's it's difficult, but you need to have a combination of things, and not everyone should try this. People don't know what this is. You know, we, in the case of waiting for Guffman, Eugene and I wrote this uh, outline, which I think was 18 pages. There was never there's never a screenplay. There's no there's no dialogue written. There's a back history of all the characters, everyone knows where they grew up, who who they knew in the town, whatever it's going to be. Obviously the music is separate. I wrote the music with Michael McKean and Harry Shearer for that show within Waiting for Guffin. But then we get to the set, I've I've spoken with all the actors about what happens in in the scenes and and there are a hundred cards put up on a board to show how every scene is broken down, but there is no rehearsal. There's none. We, I say, action, and people start talking. In all the interviews in my films, there are no questions asked. <laughs> I say, I say, action. Now, they know the inten- what's supposed to happen. They know what right. this is about, right. but you imagine in, an, in a, in a tr- real documentary, someone would say, da-da-da-da-da, and then you'd edit out the filmmaker, but th- there's, there is none of that. So this is a very unusual way of working, and maybe it isn't for everybody to do.
0: I've heard you use the word jazz in this context. Well, I do because
3: jazz comes from someone has written a song at some point. You know what key it's in. It has a beginning, middle, and end. Has a bridge, and the players establish the theme, and then they go off. And no one says, "What? Wait a minute! What the hell is that? What are you playing that note for? That's not." the same note as the melody, it's true. They go off and they come back, and no one's playing at the same time. People are, in this case, they're listening to each other. But there's no way to explain it unless you do it. So that's that's that. And in in writing with Eugene, who's obviously a great improviser, and a person that, uh, we we did several films together, and it was a good match because we both knew how, how to kind of set this, uh, if there's
0: one thing you're looking for an improvisational performer,
3: uh, as Gene asks, um,
0: is there one Well, thing?
3: it's easy. That's, that's truth. And when I when I meet people, if actors come in to meet me, there's nothing to read because there's no script. In a, in a traditional film, <coughs> conventionally, someone comes in and they pick a scene and you read with the director or you read with someone else. In, in my case, an actor comes in and I talk to them for 10 to 15 or maybe 20 minutes. And it's not about the film. It's, it's just talking to them. And within, I would say, five minutes, I know. And I can't say why, I I just say, you're the person and now you're in the movie. Uh, Question, sir.
6: We'd love to know, I guess, more your ideology, your method, or even just like, even if there's a story of insight to help us kind of. Well, this is where it gets
3: difficult. I appreciate the question. It gets difficult because <clears throat> Maybe I don't know how to articulate this, that's, that's very possible. I think you asked me the other day, do you? Did young people, or do, do people come and watch you... Want to observe your observe? Process. And the answer would, no one has ever asked me <laughs> to do that, but the answer would be no. Um, <laughs> and on, only because, only because you, someone, I don't think people could learn from that. I'm not trying to be difficult. Because this is, this, these are just people, it's kind of a magic thing. I call it a parlor trick that you can just do this. When I was going to what was called acting school at the time with Michael McKean, we were in the same class together, uh, we would start doing this at 8 in the morning. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just improvising 20 hours a day. We didn't know what it was. No one said, well, oh, you're doing this thing. <clears throat> it was just annoying to other people. It was, like, we, it, was, it was like being able to run fast or something. I never studied improvisation. I never was in a company. I, I, maybe if I was in Chicago or they didn't have any improvisational things going on in New York City other than when Second City came to New York, maybe I would have been drawn to that. I'm not really sure, but to, to do it in film is a very different thing. And people have said, well, look at, there's some other filmmakers that do that. But they don't, because what they do is they rehearse for a long time. They improvise and improvise for four months, and then that becomes a script. So this, this really is a different thing. And truthfully, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, can it be taught, can improvisation be taught, uh, the Groundlings, uh, UCB,
0: Second City, are these useful uses of young performers' time? Well, I, I don't
3: think so. I think you can get experience. No, I, I, I don't... Many in the audience I, just think, left. I think, I think um, the people that show up at to want to join Second City or the, the other ones, the people that end up in those companies haven't started from zero. They've started from, there's something going on here. Now, they can get better, it's true, they can definitely get better and refine what they do, and stage work is very different than than what we're doing in the films, but I don't think you can take someone from scratch who says, uh, I think I'm gonna try that, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. Uh, I work in the bank, but you know, I think that, I think I have a funny bone. <laughs> and I'm going to find it or I'm going to m- m- use it in some I I don't think um, I don't I don't think so but, but I, at the same time I don't want to be cynical and say you know to all the people that are 16 going to a, to a school don't do that you know because yeah. you should try everything you, should, you really should
0: uh next question
3: yes
6: yeah i have a question about uh spinal tap there are several um musicians the ones that come to mind off the top of my head at the edge stephen tyler tom waits stephen tyler actually had to walk out of spinal tap because it hit so close to home and the edge and tom waits also felt like they were like it just really The the pathos of it really hit them, Um, and I was wondering if, when you were doing it, did you see the pathos? Did you see that you know this is actually there's a little bit of sadness here in these guys' lives, or did you think this is just fucking hilarious?
3: Oh no, well, if you've seen the film, which I'm assuming you have, once or twice, um, yeah. um, There's there's a lot of intentional the 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 relationship between my character and Michael McKean's character where they kind of split over his girlfriend. <clears throat> this is obviously built into the film and, and the emotional part of that is the most important part of the film. A lot of the film was based on a tour that I did with Michael McKean in 1979. We went on tour with a, a band and a lot of that stuff happened. A lot of bad stuff happened. And we, we were in Chicago uh, playing, I don't know if it's still there, it was a, a club in Chicago And they said to us, um, we said, so we fly to, and they said, no, there's no more flying. The tour support, the woman showed up, that became the Bobby Fleckman character, on this real tour, this woman showed up and said, it's over. You guys are going to rent a car. We rented a car, and we drove to Milwaukee with our drummer driving, and... It was just like the rug being pulled out from that, and many of the other things that happened were basis for the stuff that happened in spinal tap. So we very much knew the the two sides of this. These guys in the band obviously are not that smart and they're there funny moments. but the 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 most interesting stuff to me is is that other stuff.
0: Are you tired of talking about spinal tap? Are you sick of it? no, I,
3: I like it. you know uh, you know we toured as, as that band for thirty years we we, we've toured all over the world. We've played the Royal Albert Hall and Wembley and uh, nothing more fun than to get on stage in front of you know, 70,000 people and, and, and play. There were no jokes in the show. We're playing music for two hours. Nothing more fun. So I, have a, I, I, I like it. It was, it was fun. Next question.
6: When we're living in this kind of reality now where reality feels like satire every single day, how would you approach Life well, today. I'm glad you asked that
3: question because, uh, first of all, the, the Onion has been a favorite of mine for many, many years. Um, going back a, a long, long, long way and some of the great compilations and the, the, the paper before it became a, a, a computer entity or an online entity. Um, I've thought about this a lot. I've actually thought that given the, the world we're in, I, I, when I worked at the Lampoon, we weren't doing anything political. We were doing, I don't know what it was. It was just sort of smart ass something or other. But uh, to be a person who does, to be a group of people who do uh, satire or parody, or um, I, I really wouldn't know how to come at that now. Because that's been uh, changed in a, in, a, in a way that no one could have imagined a few years ago. So I don't know the answer to that. <clears throat> if, I don't, if I did that now, I think I would uh, be doing something else. Next
6: question, go ahead. I'm just wondering in all the amazing roles you have personally played in your films, if there's one that is especially
1: autobiographical. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <geez. laughs> <laughs> the
3: one that's literally autobiographical is the Six-Finger Man. Uh, I. Uh, That's basically my life, (laughs) Uh, a cruel man from the 16th century with an extra finger who has a torture chamber. Yeah. Um, No, the answer is is no, but what, what it does represent is observations I've had over the years growing up and looking at people and taking one thing from someone and some people during Spinal Tap would come up after the movie and many bands would come up to us and say, oh I know who
0: that's, yeah, yeah, I know who that is,
3: oh yeah, yeah, that's Bufta. I said, what? That's Bufta. yeah, the guy in that band in, uh... no, it's not Bufta. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> The guy in that group. I don't know who Bufta is, there's no (laughs) Bufta. People believe what they want to see in certain things and there's nothing autobiographical, they're just things. uh, Well, Spinal Tap, the example is that I was in a hotel in Los Angeles waiting for a friend in the lobby uh, um, and an English band was checking in. This was 1974. The manager and I think there were four of them, they went up to the desk and he started doing the thing and I was just waiting for my friend and the manager says to one of them where's your base what where's your base i don't know i think i left it at the airport you what i don't know you left your base at the airport i don't know where is it well i don't know i'm asking you well it went on for 15 minutes I don't think I've ever been happier. (laughs) Except for the night that I met
6: my wife. Um... Real quick, I am uh, trying to be a filmmaker now. Came out in an untraditional sense, kind of like you did, didn't go to film school.
3: Next question, please. No, get it, no, no, come back, come back, come back.
6: Just wanted to see what advice you would have for someone starting out uh, with, you know, no film school experience, trying to get rolling like you did. Well, for
3: how much independent money do you have? <laughs> well, I would say that everyone is different and you have to follow, if you have an idea that you want to do a particular thing, it goes for music as well, that you absolutely just have to keep doing it. And if you really want to do it, you're going to find a way to do it. There's no, there's no particular advice that I would give other than that, which is if, the, if you love this, then you, you have to do it. You just have to keep doing it. You can't, you can't give up, yeah.
5: I'm not a student of film, but I love a good story, and you are one of my favorite storytellers. So okay. maybe outside of the storytellers that we have Fellini and Kubrick, um, who are some of your favorite storytellers?
3: Well, I, I, I would go to literature, before I would go to uh, films, and I would say, n- number one would be Charles Dickens. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I read Charles Dickens at an early point in my life and started rereading it later. Um, again, there are some good films as well. There are a couple of good films of his, of his work. That, to me, has a combination of amazing, incredibly convoluted stories, uh, people, humor, drama, just everything.
0: We had uh, Glenn Close with us and I asked her, why are you so interested in doing TV content? She said, it's like the new Dickens now. We have this episodic we can do anything in short doses. Do you think that's overstating it? Do you think we're back to a place where stories are getting better? I TV think TV is,
3: is, is at a very high level. Uh, there, there's a lot of good TV, I should say, now. And I think that it, the way it's presented, it attracts good writers. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, yeah. People now have a, a place where they can uh, use their talents, where yeah. 10 years ago they couldn't do it. You have, you have Amazon, you have Netflix, you have various uh, places, and some of the great work is being done there.
6: Question. When something, in, something isn't coming off on, on set, when it's like in your head a very specific way, I was curious if you have any tricks or anything you do to try to conjure something out of an actor that you're failing to articulate, that you see in your brain so clearly.
3: Well, <clears throat> I'm, I think I'm fortunate because when I uh, go through that process of meeting actors and, and inviting them into the movie, you're now in the movie. Really, with one exception, in all the movies I've made, I've never had that happen. I've never been in a situation where I, do, they do a take and I think, oh boy, how am I gonna, what am I gonna do to reshape this? Uh, I think it's, it's great if you're a director to take acting classes and spend as much time as you can with actors to start to know how to work with them. Assuming you're gonna be working with actors as opposed to uh, another kind of filmmaking.
6: Hi, um, big fan. Now, watching all these clips from all these movies that really, like, you took things away from, you know, all these, this classic cinema, and someone who's younger, who grew up watching a lot of classic films, um, do you think that we look at the past with these rose-tinted goggles and all these films are sort of cherry-picked, or do you think modern cinema feature-length movies as a whole is sort of in a slump right now?
3: Well, it's a good question. Um, Maybe the percentages are always the same. Maybe um, certain films from another time get elevated. People pick out these years. Again, I'm not a student of of films, but there are certain years, like 1939 or something, where they made all these great movies. But they probably made 300 horrible movies, too. Seriously, and it's true, every year, there are a few wonderful movies. And there are many, again, it's opinion, but movies that aren't good. So as, as you go through the world, I think there's something that may balance out, where we look back ten years from now and say, there were four or five really good movies and, and <clears throat> a lot of stuff that just disappears. But it, it feels like a slump because the, because of the internet and because of you're, you're bombarded, I was traveling, uh, where was I going? Somewhere. Oh, here. Um, <laughs> <coughs> no, actually, I was in New York just a few days ago, and I went back to Los Angeles. And the terminal I was in, I can't remember what airline it was, it was wall-to-wall ads for Baywatch. I mean, it was hundreds of yards of Baywatch poster things or people, naked people thing. Um, I've never seen so much advertising in my life. The entire thing, it was, it went on for, <coughs> forever. Now I, don't, I didn't see the film, I didn't read anything about it, I know nothing about the film, but we're bombarded with all this stuff and then people kind of turn out, they just turn off or whatever, then they get cynical and they write stuff and I don't know, you've probably seen they watch twice yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm missing it right now
0: the rock love the rock uh, thank you great question uh, next question moving along good questions tonight hi so
4: i'm a huge fan i grew up watching your movies and then at a very young age when i first started making movies made documentaries inspired by you and thank now you. i'm studying at nyu tish as well wow. So she's following you. Yes, I've always been a very independent filmmaker, and I'm wondering how collaboration has had a positive effect on your work.
3: Well, collaboration for me is, is, the, is the essence of the whole thing. <clears throat> um, whether it's uh, someone I write with, or eventually an ensemble of people that you're acting with, that to me is the most fun thing and the most productive thing for me. That's the most fun way to work.
0: Do you have to be a social person to be a good collaborator? Are those two no, distinct. No. Those two two distinct no, vocabularies. No. No.
3: No. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Long time fan and asking. So, been following you forever, and with even the beginning of the Lemmings and your National Lampoons, I know we don't like to use the M word, but you. you do. What I like to use is you lovingly lampoon. But the idea that you obviously care about those that you parody, and it's with kindness that you take your uh, comedy. Can you speak about that? Is that something that you decided to do very early, you were aware of, or is it something that just came to you?
3: Well, I think it came later, because when I was doing stuff at the lampoon, It was pretty uh, sharp-edged. I did uh, Bob Dylan on our first record in 1971. I did James Taylor. I did Mr. Rogers in 1973 with Bill Murray. We did these weird things for the records, and I would say that those weren't loving (laughs) portrayals. We got uh, telephone calls from attorneys (laughs) representing Mr. Dillon uh, and Mr. Rogers. Should you s- run into James saying, Taylor? Uh, no, I didn't hear it, although I, I, I played James Taylor in, in this, this musical we did in New York, and James Taylor came backstage. He was with his wife at the time, uh, Carly, and I was absolutely mortified. I was, I was such a huge fan of his. This was 1973, <coughs> and he was white, well he is white, but I mean he was, he was uh, and I felt horrible and I think that actually, um, so later uh, it became not specific people and a character like Corky St. Clair is a character, I like that person, oh, oh, um, I, I, I think he's, he's a, You know, he's not smart or talented, but I really am (laughs) fond of that person. I'm fond of the character. In the same way I'm fond of Nigel, who's not smart, but it's not nasty, you know. So I think there was an evolution in that. Uh,
0: Next question. Mm.
5: I was just wondering, for your films, if you come up with a concept first or a character?
3: Well, there are times um, where I'll drive my car and start doing a voice. And that does turn into something. Uh, So it it can come from that. Um, Best in show, um, my wife and I used to take uh, a a dog we had many years ago to a dog park. And he was a a mutt. He was a combo kind of thing of probably a lab and a golden retriever or something. And I remember a woman had a purebred dog, and she looked at our dog, and she said, What's that? (laughs) I don't know, it's just a a dog. (laughs) And I thought, this is extraordinary because it was basically racism, Uh, (laughs) and it it drew me into this world. And when I started researching dogs for the dog shows, uh, every owner looks at the other dogs as if they're inferior. Every other breed looks down their nose at the other dog and says, that's just not quite good enough. And I thought that was amazing. So that, in that case, that was an experience, a different kind of experience. Two more. Yes.
4: Hi, Mr. Guest. I appreciate you taking my question. Thank you. Um, I had a question about the connection between music and comedy. Many comedians also happen to be be very talented when it comes to music, and you, the actors with which you've worked, have also been very talented. Jane Lynch, who we saw, has a great voice and she also plays. So I wanted to know um, do you think if there's a connection between music and comedy and if so how has that impacted your work?
3: Well I think there is. I, I don't, I'm not a scientist so I don't, uh, wait a minute I am a scientist. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I don't know what that is but I know, I did a movie called A Mighty Wind and all those people, <laughs> thank you, all the people are, are, We're really playing that music live in the movie. Now that doesn't happen in movies either, but Eugene uh, is a talented uh, singer and guitar player, Catherine's playing the auto harp, uh, Parker Posey was playing the mandolin, Jane Lynch is playing guitar, great singer, on and on, and there is clearly some connection. Uh, Michael McKean is an incredibly great player, and Spinal Tap was uh, another thing we did. So I don't know how to explain what that is, but it, it's true. You, you, I run into people who are in comedy that that Certainly, Ricky Ricky Gervais uh, uh, writes songs and sings and plays the guitar, and uh, it does happen a lot.
0: You you trained on the clarinet as well, correct?
3: (laughs) I studied the clarinet as a small person, and I don't mean as a Peter Dinklage person. I mean as a a, well, no, and I was younger. Uh, Have you? I wasn't. I I got. I take that back. I was a, I was a child, and my mother said, yeah. "Here." I said, "Great, this is sexy clarinet." <laughs> I, I I was leaning towards. Have you ever heard Woody
0: Allen play the clarinet?
3: I've heard him not live, but I've heard him play the clarinet.
0: Right. Is he still does the no. Well, he's not a
3: great clarinet player. I mean, he's not. Yeah. He's he likes to play, which is great.
0: Would you say he's serviceable?
3: Serviceable. <laughs> you know, forget I. I know what forget that I. Mean, so.
0: Final question. No pressure. Then a final word, and then a good night. Yeah.
6: Yeah, might be the worst quest- last question ever. Um, so I'm getting giddy talking to my wife over there. While I listen to you say you watch The Onion, because I've been in a couple of the episodes, oh. and I'm getting like real like, oh my God, does, has he ever seen me before? Maybe. And then I decided I'm gonna ask the like, the most selfish question I could think of, and then that was, um, we did a show here in Chicago that was uh, based off Waiting for Guffman. It was the show inside the show, Red, White and Blaine. Yes. Uh, I don't know if we got your permission or not, but we did <laughs> this show. You've heard that before. And, uh, and it, was, it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. And it was in the New York Times and everything. And basically, I'm just wondering... I have if, bad news for you. <laughs> have you. Have you heard of me? <laughs> that's it. That's all. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, no, is that really it? Yeah. Uh, uh,
6: so, no, uh, the question was simply, had you heard of it? That's a good question.
3: Excellent question. No. Uh, although... Uh, I have heard of other people in other parts of the country doing essentially the same thing. Seriously, no I don't mean ripping you off, just (laughs) organically sort of saying, wouldn't it be fun to do this? And my lawyer said, it really wouldn't be fun at all. (laughs) uh, But thank you for... uh, You know, just to
0: to go back to Something I said four hours ago. What will your legacy in movies be? Because I put you in, in the spectrum of any filmmaker, like all the great filmmakers we talk. Well, that's about. where you
3: make a mistake, Robert.
0: <laughs> well, is, that, is that preposterous to well, you? Well, it's, I mean, it,
3: it, it's it's very. I don't uh, mean to be. Um, well, I I've been lucky to get a chance to do what I do. I've, I've had chances to play music, and I've chance to make some films and I really don't kind of look at it that way, I just that was fun and now we're doing something else or we're not doing something else. So I think it would be kind of arrogant and dangerous to start looking at what I do or have done in any way at all, truthfully. I I just, this is now a different part of my life and I do different things and and that's what I do. You know you say you're lucky, I I Well, I'm fortunate. I'm I'm not saying that. Whoa! Look at this. Another idea. No, I'm not trying to discount. I I I just mean that I've been, I've been fortunate to to meet some great people, to work with some great people, and uh, you know, just the simple version of this. People, if they are studying film, the reason this has no useful. This has no benefit, because when I, uh, I met Rob Reiner a long time ago, uh, <clears throat> we, we did uh, Spinal Tap together, and then he formed a company called Castle Rock, and he said to me, do you want to make a movie? I said, uh, yeah, sure. He said, what is it? And I said, well, I have this idea for a f- film. He said, go and make the movie. Because Norman Lear had said to him, he came. To, we went to Norman Lear and said, "We have this weird movie. It's about these English guys rock and roll." Norman said, "Go and make the movie." So, so what was handed down was Rob saying to me, "Go and make the movie. It's your movie. Go and make the movie. Here's the money. Go and make the movie." So I've never had a, <clears throat> a, a, a typical trajectory of, you know, pitch meetings and things. We do the thing. I, you know. I didn't go to film school, and that big picture is completely fictional. There's, there's nothing about that that ever happened to me. I just made it up. Yeah. So I, I don't mean lucky just as stumbling on, on the sidewalk and falling on something good, but, but I've been fortunate, and it unco- makes me uncomfortable to look at that in any way except, uh, well, that happened.
0: <laughs> in that case, thank you, Norman Lear. Thank you, Rob Reiner. Thank you, Christopher yeah. Guest.
3: Thank you, Robert.
0: I want to thank Christopher Guest. I want to thank the Onion Comedy Festival. We want to thank. I want to thank personally. Want to thank Harry Shear Eugene Levy, Fred Willard, Jane Lynch, Catherine O'Hara, all for taking the time to record messages for Chris. Really, thank you. You can listen to our show Murmur every week on WHUPLP Hillsboro. And on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, MurmurRadio.com. See you soon.